Hello, I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and welcome to Crisis to Opportunity, Episode 2, What Worked Then Doesn't Work Now. In this episode, we'll explore how our primitive instincts lead us to react in certain ways that aren't helpful and, in fact, can be counterproductive when we're faced with modern-day crises. Let's start with our primitive crisis wiring. A crisis triggers in us the most primitive reactions that have evolved from when our ancestors began walking upright eons ago. The intention of this ancient response was, and still is, to ensure our survival. A threat to our survival mobilized our emotional, physical, and psychological resources in reaction to the perceived threat, the perceived crisis. Threats back then were generally pretty simple. For example, threat of starvation could be solved by killing some game or a threat from a rival tribesman could be removed by doing battle or running away. Reducing that threat by either vanquishing it through fighting or distancing it through fleeing resulted in our survival being ensured. Emotionally, we experience immediate and intense feelings. If we had a chance to survive by fighting, we felt extreme anger that motivated us to attack the crisis with ferocity. If we had a better chance to survive by fleeing, we experienced fear, which drove us to run away from the crisis with the utmost haste. Without these strong emotions that catalyze rapid physiological and psychological changes, which in turn produced immediate action, our ancestors would have died and their gene pools wouldn't have been propagated. Physically, our survival instinct prepared us by sharpening our senses, increasing our strength and stamina, and reducing our perception of pain. We felt a rush of adrenaline. Our hearts pounded hard and fast, directing blood flow to parts of the body needed to respond to the crisis. For example, to our legs when confronted by a wild animal or a rival tribesman that would enable us to run away as fast as possible. Our breathing became forced and shallow. Without these essential physical changes that produce the maximum amount of strength and agility to either fight or the speed and endurance to flee, our primitive forebears would have been dead. Psychologically, our focus honed in on the cause of the crisis, our, and our decision-making was shifted into hyperdrive. We simply didn't have time to think through what decision to make and what actions to take. So these instantaneous changes in our psychology made certain that our minds locked onto the crisis, raced through the various options, and worked feverishly to, 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 to determine the best possible course of action in response to the crisis. The fact is, without a laser-like focus, Quick thinking and rapid decision-making, our early ancestors didn't have a chance of survival. The reality back in primitive times was that those who didn't react emotionally, physically, and psychologically to the crisis the fastest way possible didn't, as they say, live to tell the tale. They either were killed before they had time to respond or lacked the capabilities to fight with sufficient rage or flee with adequate urgency. Unfortunately, what worked as cave people doesn't usually work in the 21st century. Now, you may ask, why would a reaction that has served us so well, first as animals when we crawled out of the primordial muck some 300 million years ago, and later as Homo sapiens for the past 250 years, not work now? The answer lies in the increased complexity of life that has evolved as humankind has become more civilized and as technological advancements have changed our individual, social, and work lives. The notion of survival and how best to ensure it has changed dramatically since the earliest days of humankind. For most people in the, in the developed world, it's no longer about staying alive in the face of an immediate crisis. It's not even about putting a roof over our heads, clothes on our backs, or food on the table. These essentials haven't changed much since we lived in caves, though admittedly our caves have gotten larger, our clothes fancier, and our food better tasting, thankfully. 
Unlike crises of the past, those of today have complex dimensions that were unheard of for our ancestors and that our ancient survival instinct is now ill-prepared for. The nature of crises today are different from those of our ancestors in the very makeup. Crises of the present are often unseeable, difficult to understand, or even unthinkable. For example, the Great Recession and its continuing aftermath with its incomprehensible credit default swaps, collateralized debt obligations, and subprime mortgages have demonstrated how complex our lives are. Gosh, to the point where even the CEOs of the companies that sold those arcane financial products didn't understand how they worked or their implications in the financial markets. Also, many of today's crises are distant and their impact is indirect. For example, the wars in the Middle East that America has been fighting for almost 20 years are occurring thousands of miles from U.S. shores, yet they're affecting us profoundly as individuals and as a country. Current crises are often also amorphous. Their effects diffuse, their causes unclear, and as a consequence, their solutions elusive. Crises of today are frequently delayed and then lingering. The housing crisis of the late 2000s, for example, was years in the making, and more than a decade later is still being felt by many people. Lastly, many crises these days are beyond individual or even institutional control. During the Great Recession, as many of us watched our jobs disappear, our homes foreclosed on, and our investment portfolios decimated, we were helpless to intervene. There was nothing we could do. Even more scary, as our entire economy slumped so dramatically, we also saw that industry and government had only limited ability to exert control and turn our economy around. So the survival instinct that was triggered in response to crises that worked so well for our forebears is now far too simplistic and binary to effectively overcome the varied nature of modern day crises. In fact, not only is it not effective, but it is usually counterproductive to our survival or to the survival of companies, industries, societies, or even to our earth. Moreover, the crisis landscape in the last two decades alone has changed even more compared to just 50 years ago, much less 50,000 years ago. As I'll describe throughout my podcast, the economic, political, technological, and cultural shifts of the last two decades have been truly tectonic in their impact on our lives. Many of the paradigms, practices, and solutions that were applicable in the 20th century are no longer relevant or useful. We can no longer turn to the tried and true answers from the past, distant or recent, to fall back on for many of the crises we now face in the 20th century. Why? Well, thanks to the technological revolution that we've seen since the start of the new millennium. These changes require us to look at crises in new and different ways and to seek innovative and untested solutions to the crises we're confronted with if we have any hope of overcoming them. This exploration demonstrates clearly that the crisis mentality of primitive times has outlived its usefulness. In an ideal world, this outdated instinctive response would go the way of the dinosaurs and the appendix, extinct or having no impact on us respectively, except of course for the occasional appendicitis. Yet the crisis mentality is not going away anytime soon. This ancient reaction to crisis, which is coded into the, our very genes, cannot be immediately exercised from our psyches, and it will take many millions of years for it to evolve out of us. So instead of removing it from us, our only hope is to remove its power over us, neutering it, you might say, so that its influence over us becomes negligible. To do this, you must understand the crisis mentality and learn to gain mastery over it so that while others are reacting as our ancestors did to a crisis, with, for example, fear, pessimism, and panic, you can remain calm, optimistic, and purposeful in response to it. This transition from the crisis instincts of our distant past 
to our more effective psychology of our present and future is essential if we're to respond positively to the crises that we will inevitably face in our lives in the 21st century and beyond. As Henry Kissinger, the American statesman, noted quite humorously, there cannot be a crisis today. My schedule is already full. If this crisis mentality that is so deeply woven into our DNA no longer fulfills our basic instinct of survival, what can we possibly do to survive in the concrete, metal, and wired world in which we now live? Well, as with earlier forms of evolution, we need to adapt to our surroundings and produce a shift in the crisis instinct that will be more effective than the, than the survival instinct that served us so well for these hundreds of thousands of years. We need to develop what I call an opportunity psychology. As Rahm Emanuel, President Obama's former chief of staff, stated, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. In other words, it is an opportunity to take positive action. Notably, this new approach is also more in line with the linguistic origins of crisis that I discussed in episode one. Just as I define crisis in a deep way so that we may have a shared and understood vocabulary about what I mean by a crisis, I also want us to have a collective understanding of what I mean by an opportunity. An opportunity is defined as an occasion or situation that makes it possible to do something that you want to do or have to do. A favorable junction of circumstances, a good position, chance or prospect, as for advancement or success. Now, as these definitions suggest, we normally see opportunities as positive situations from which we can gain considerably from, which would seem a far cry from what crises present to us. Yet, though crises are by their very nature negative, there are two aspects of them that are quite positive. First, they require a positive orientation, that is, an opportunity psychology, to navigate them successfully, a can-do attitude rather than a defeatist attitude. Second, as many people who have weathered crises will tell you, the challenges that arise from a crisis can lead to new and healthy realizations, perspectives, growth, and yes, opportunities that have a very positive impact on our lives. In other words, crises can ultimately be life-affirming and life-changing in the most positive ways. Additionally, I found a definition of opportunity in a business dictionary that really hits the nail on the head. Exploitable set of circumstances with uncertain outcome, requiring commitment of resources, and involving exposure to risk. Let me repeat that because it's a really wonderful definition. Exploitable set of circumstances with uncertain outcome, requiring a commitment of resources, and involving exposure to risk. This definition, like the more nuanced understanding of crisis that I just discussed in episode one, sees opportunity both as positive and potentially negative. Interestingly then, crisis and opportunity have much more in common than we might initially think. Given these richer explorations of both crisis and opportunity, we can conclude that they really differ less in the substance of the situation than in how they are perceived. And it's these divergent perceptions that set you on very different roads as you confront a crisis. Notes Maxwell Maltz, the author of Psycho-Cybernetics, close scrutiny will show that most crisis situations are opportunities to either advance or stay where you are. The primitive crisis mentality is so instinctive and powerful that you may feel as if the reaction is so overwhelming that you have no chance but to respond to it, like being on a highway with no exits. You're going to stay on that road because you have no way to get off. Yet, developing an opportunity psychology involves recognizing that your response to a crisis is not an immutable path governed by evolution in your genes, but rather a modifiable route in which you can choose how you re will react based upon thought and reason. Think of it this way. Instead of that one road of crisis mentality ahead that millions of years of evolution is trying to drag you down, you see forks in the road. That's a very important metaphor I use, forks in the road, from which you can select 
and opportunity psychology. Your ability to recognize and choose a different road in your psychology that I'll explore in this podcast will determine whether you're able to resist the ineffective crisis mentality of the past and embrace the more constructive opportunity psychology of the present and the future. Forks in the road arise when you come to a place in a crisis in which your crisis mentality compels you to take one road that worked for our ancestors, but probably won't work for you in today's world. In other words, that road you're propelled down by your crisis mentality will lead to some form of quote-unquote death, whether psychological, social, professional, financial, physical, or another form of demise that may result from a crisis. Though you may not have been aware of it in the past, there are other roads, good roads, you can take that are much more effective in a crisis. In fact, opportunity psychology begins when you recognize these forks in which you experience immediate and overwhelming negative emotions such as fear, anger, or despair, intensely negative thinking, for example, I'm sure I'm going to lose my job, or begin to engage in destructive behavior, such as attacking your boss. But recognition is not enough to take the good road. Rather, it only gives you the opportunity to make a better choice. Your crisis mentality is still deeply ingrained in you and very strong. So you will will likely go through a period in which you recognize the good road when you arrive there, but you still take the bad road. You shouldn't be discouraged by this internal battle. Your crisis mentality has been around a long time, and it is not easy to overcome. It's at this point you must muster the calm, confidence, and determination to reject your crisis mentality and take the good road of opportunity psychology. My podcast is devoted to showing you how to recognize and take these good roads. From the photographer Robert Freeman, character is not made in a crisis. It is only exhibited. In making the shift from a crisis mentality to an opportunity psychology, I'm not suggesting that you become a robot, cold, detached, and distant from a crisis. That is, quite frankly, impossible, given that we are human beings. In other words, I'm not encouraging you to shed your humanity to protect yourself from the crisis or become an unfeeling automaton who responds to a crisis in a pre-programmed or disengaged way. To the contrary, I want you to fully embrace your humanity and leverage every aspect of being human, not just your primitive side, to respond positively and constructively to the crises life throws at you. Being human means accepting that a crisis mentality will envelop you at first. You can't resist millions of years of evolution so easily. In fact, if you try to defend against the powerful emotions and physiology you'll experience in a crisis, you will actually do yourself more harm than good. Being human in a crisis involves acknowledging and accepting the crisis reaction as part of the deal. It's natural and normal. And, paradoxically enough, not immediately pushing the crisis reaction away is a sign of strength that you want to embrace rather than a sign of weakness that you would prefer to ignore. You can use that initial wave of crisis mentality to fuel and focus you. At the same time, because most crises we face in the modern world tend to unfold at a slower pace than those of our forebearers, Being human also means that you don't allow the crisis mentality to consume and overwhelm you and dictate your long-term reactions to it. Thanks to our evolved brain, what separates us from animals, we don't have to fall victim to our primitive urges, but rather we have the ability to corral and harness them, release ourselves from their control, and make full use of the more evolved aspects of our humanity with the end goal of responding more purposefully and productively to the crises we face. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power to escape 
from the hardwired grip of the outdated and ineffective crisis mentality and replace it with a modern day and beneficial opportunity psychology that will enable you to emerge from a crisis not only surviving, but also thriving. My podcast will explore the meaning and power of crisis and how it impacts us. I'll also provide compelling examples from notable crises, both recent and historical, well-known and unfamiliar, to bring these issues alive. I'll then provide you with deep insights, useful information, and practical tools to ensure that you break free of the crisis mentality and fully embrace an opportunity psychology in crises and all aspects of your life. To conclude this episode, from the English journalist Gemma Malley, there was always an opportunity in crisis, however desperate things seemed. I'm Dr. Jim Taylor, and thanks for listening to Episode 2 of Crisis to Opportunity.